little bit more of who you are. I just pray that you use my brother Matt. Just use him as your mouthpiece this morning, Father. Speak through him. By your spirit, just speak through him. And let our hearts be not just hearers of the word, but doers also. That we would that we would hear it and listen. Let our hearts just be like clay this morning, Father. In the potter's hand, we just we just set that right before you and say, have your way. We're here, Lord. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, have a seat. Morning, everybody. Morning. Uh, this morning we're in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, uh, and we're talking about the resurrection. I don't know if um, you were thinking about the resurrection when you woke up this morning. I don't know if that's been a topic that's been on your mind. Probably not. A lot of our world is spending money, billions and trillions of dollars, to distract you from the fact of death. They'd like to keep you thinking that you will stay young and you will stay alive forever, and therefore, the uh, hope of the resurrection has lost some of its appeal. But um, I'm telling you, this uh, when we were passing out the passages, okay, we knew we were going to do First Corinthians next. And like, Westy, why don't you do the opening of chapter one? I was like, yes. And then they're like, why don't you do chapter eleven? I was like, head coverings. Maybe according to me, as you have said, and then and why don't you do um, why don't you do fifteen? I was like, yes, yes, I get to speak on the resurrection because you know that's I mean it's something so amazing, right? You know that's why we um, are doing this on Sunday morning, right? I mean, you know, my. <laughs> My kids will ask, why are we going to church again? And I've told you some of my answers for that. They just keep asking. (laughs) So one of the things that I say is your birthday, the day you were born, is so special to the people who love you that every year we celebrate it. Every year we celebrate your birthday because it's so special to the people who love you. (gasps) The day that Jesus rose from the dead is so special that the people who love him get together every week to celebrate that. So that's what we're doing this morning. Let's stand together. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm preaching the entire chapter this morning. Begin by reading verses 1 through 11. Paul's correcting some misperceptions on the resurrection, some doubts about the resurrection, some objections to the resurrection this entire chapter. He writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Then to the twelve, 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Let's pray. Our great Lord of life, you are the one who raised Jesus from the dead. We look to you this morning, knowing that your power is great, that your word is true, and that your promises are sure. Pray that you would impress them on our hearts for your glory and for our good. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The passage today is four challenges from Paul about the resurrection. Four cords of jumper cables that he is trying to get from the, the, the power plant of the resurrection to your heart. Four jumper cables to your heart to ignite your faith. The first one is found in verses 1 through 11, the verses we just read. Paul calls us to face the facts of the resurrection. Face the facts of the resurrection. Second, verses 12 through 34, Paul points out the dangers of denying the resurrection. I hope you guys appreciate the amount of alliteration that's going on here, okay? (laughs) Hours, hours spent on thesaurus.com, okay? Finding this stuff for you. Face the facts of the resurrection, the dangers of denying the resurrection. Thirdly, Verses 35 to 49, Paul calls us to analyze the anatomy of the resurrection. And fourth, verses 50 to 58, Paul invites us to grasp the glory of the resurrection. Silly words, fantastic truths. Let's begin with verses 1 through 11 and face the facts of the resurrection. Paul comes at you really quick with four jabs on the resurrection. First, verse 2, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. It's a fact that you have to face. His death was to put right the situation that was caused by human sins. That's why he died. Second, verse 4, Paul writes that he was buried. This means that he really died, okay? The reason they buried him was because he was really dead. If he had come off the cross gasping for air, the women would have tried to nurse him back to health, not put him in the ground, There's a big difference between a hospital room and a tomb, okay? He died, and they buried him. A third fact, also in verse 4, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Notice he was raised by God's power. God raised him through the agency of the Holy Spirit's work. That's the same way that we're going to be raised that's coming. The fourth fact, in verse 5, he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. So this empty tomb... And the appearances, you need them both. You need them both. If you only have one, the Christian faith falls apart. If you've got um, an empty tomb but no appearances, well, then maybe somebody stole the body. Or maybe as one um, uh, skeptical New Testament scholar said, maybe animals got in the the tomb somehow and and dragged the body away. That's all you had. If all you had was an empty tomb, that doesn't prove anything. 
But if all you had was appearances and the body in the tomb, then it would just be a ghost. And the New Testament world had a lot of those sorts of stories floating around, but this was not one of those. Remember Jesus? This is one of my favorite things. Jesus shows up whenever he's, he's risen from the dead, he walks in, he's like, you guys got something to eat? I love that. Such good news for those of us who look forward to that aspect of the new creation. <laughs> okay, says the skeptical thinker. Okay, fresh from his history of religion class. Sure, this is what the Christians said. But the resurrection of Jesus was a development of later Christianity. It's the result of thinking that the Christian community had to do together to try to make sense. They lost their beloved leader. They tried to make sense of what was happening to them. They got together and considered, how can we deal with someone we love so much being gone? And they came up with this belief that he had risen from the dead as a way to deal with it. Many um, uh, Christians, many people who have thought about Christianity have come to that conclusion, um, including... um, Martin Luther King, actually, was one of the people who at least uh, wrote that at one point earlier in his ministry. I'm not sure where he ended up with, but that's not true. Let me give you four reasons why it is certain that the gospel stories of the resurrection are not the product of some later thinking, but basically eyewitness accounts of people who just sort of like, let me just tell you exactly what I saw. Four reasons why. First of all, the descriptions of the risen Jesus are amazing and unpredictable. Okay? What would they have thought resurrection was going to be? What would, you know, without knowing all the things that we know about what was going to happen and all of that, what were they thinking a resurrection could be? The main Jewish view at the time of Christ was held by the Pharisees, obviously Sadducees, no resurrection. The Pharisees had this idea, sort of formed by passages like Daniel 12 and 2 Maccabees 7, an apocryphal book, believed that because God was the great creator and the judge and because the material universe was essentially good, that at the end of all time, all of the dead would be raised simultaneously to mark the age to come. There were very few specifics that they had in mind. One of the ideas, one of the most prominent ideas comes from Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3. I'll just read it to you. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So whenever somebody says um, hell does not exist in the Old Testament, just say, incorrect, Daniel 12. The resurrection doesn't exist in the Old Testament, incorrect. I can think of three published books by Christian publishers in the last three years that say, well, the concept of hell doesn't even exist in the Old Testament. Incorrect. Daniel 12, verse 2. It's really easy there. But here's verse 3. This is what the Pharisees thought. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So... What they thought was when the resurrection happens, people are probably going to actually physically shine. They would be shiny. Interesting. Resurrection is this huge plot twist by the master author. There's hints earlier in the story, but in in hindsight it was clear, but it was missed at the time. We have to recognize it was absolutely blasphemous for a Jewish person to suggest worshiping a human being. 
absolutely blasphemous. And yet, hundreds of them, overnight, started worshiping Jesus. Overnight. The hundreds of him that knew him best. Who are the hundred people that know you best? What would they think of worshiping you? I didn't think so. The hundred people who knew Christ best overnight worshipped him. If there was a group of people on earth who would not worship another human being, it would have been the Jewish people. What a great place for the Messiah to show up. Second, okay, so first, the risen, the stories are amazing and unpredictable. Second, the resurrection stories are not steeped in Old Testament imagery. Like the, the stories of Passion Week and the stories of the cross, there's all these like, this fulfills this, this fulfills this, this fulfills this, Psalm 22, Psalm 110. The stories of the resurrection are not steeped in that imagery, which means they're not carefully fabricated stories based on scriptural study. They read like the out of breath, I ran over here to tell you, I haven't thought through all the implications of this yet, but I got to tell somebody and I got to tell them fast, we just saw a person who was dead and now they're alive. It just has this like, I got to tell somebody right now. And what does it mean? Well, we'll figure that out later. I got to tell you that it happened first. Third, the women's role as witnesses in this story. You... If you wanted to convince a skeptical world that Jesus had risen from the dead, you would not make the first witnesses, the primary witnesses in the ancient Near East, women. Their testimony wouldn't have been allowed in court. Why were the witnesses women in the first story? Well, it's because that's what happened. If you were making up a story, you'd make up something else. Why not Joseph of Arimathea? That would be a great sort of witness to it. No, we have three ladies, two of which we don't have their names written down. Why would you do that? Because that's what happened. Fourth, while each got this helped me so much. While each gospel tells the same story, there is very little overlap in their vocabulary. Have you noticed this? To the point which it makes it difficult to construct a clear timeline of the detail of events. I used to think that was proof that maybe it didn't happen because this part in Mark that's strange and it kind of ends funny. This part in Matthew doesn't line up exactly with John. But the unique nature of the four stories bear a strong mark of authenticity. N.T. Wright writes this, The authors had certainly not colluded in making up a story and were now sticking to it. They didn't make up a story like, okay, repeat after me. This first, then this. No, you messed it up. Start again. It's just for people who had seen what had happened. The New Testament gospel stories are the results, the memories of these early gospel writers of the actual factual things they had seen. They died for them. They died for them, all of them. All those people died for the truth of what they wrote. So, face the facts of the resurrection, Paul writes. Second, We have to be careful of the dangers of denying the resurrection. This is verses 12 through 34. Paul reminds the Corinthians, he's reminding us, that denying the resurrection has enormous, painful, and devastating implications. He's going to give us three of them. First one, this is verses 12 through 19. The danger of denying the resurrection, first of all, sin will always reign. Sin will always reign. I'll just zero in here on verse 17. 
If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. It is very tempting to make yourself the highest authority. It is very tempting because we have guilt in our hearts. If God exists, then we feel like we'll have to answer to him. So we'd rather that not be true so that we could do whatever we want. And so it's very tempting for us to make ourselves the highest authority. That way guilt disappears. If I don't have to answer to God, then guilt disappears. If there's nothing greater than me, then I have nothing to worry about long term. Here's the problem. When guilt disappears, so does hope. If there's nothing greater than you, then you are it. You thought about that? That one gets me. Because even if, even if there isn't a God, which when I think about it, there has to be, but even if there isn't, I don't even um, keep up on my own standard. Um, just think about an app that I'm working on, except I stink at computers. Think about an app that I'm working on for your iPhone, and it's called the Ought app. And what happens is every time you say, like, you know what, what you really ought to do is this, or a good mom ought to, or a good dad should, a friend really ought to, just the app just captures it, just records it, records your voice. Whenever you shake your head at somebody in a grocery store about the way that they're acting, or whenever you think to yourself, that driver, he shouldn't, the app just captures it and puts it right into a huge database of your morality. And then just score yourself on your own scale. You can't even live up to your own standard. What about God's? You're in trouble either way. Do not cut out your sense of needing something, of having something greater than you. Yes, it may bring guilt. That guilt is there anyway for the reflective person. But because there is something greater than us, there's also hope. The resurrection can provide a long-term solution to your guilt problem, but not until you admit your guilt problem is real. Because something greater than us exists, we have to answer it, we have to answer to it, but glorious news, the resurrection means not just that guilt has been conquered, but it means that sin itself has been defeated. The resurrection is not just a return from death, it's a conquest of death. The resurrection means that sin will not always reign. Second danger, sin will always reign. Second danger, the world will always be a mess. This is verses 20 through 28. Paul writes to us, I'll I'll pick up the argument in verse 24. Then comes the end when... He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We often hear unbiblical foolishness at funeral services. Funeral services are one of the places um, where heretics get the loudest. Um, These services often reflect Greek or Gnostic views of death. The Greeks welcomed death 
as the liberation of the soul from the prison of the body. Now the Greeks and the Gnostics thought the self can finally be the pure spirit that it always eternally has been, that it always has meant to be. The biblical view, by contrast, views death as an enemy. Death is an enemy. God created people with united bodies and united bodies to spirits, spirits and bodies built, created together. The reason they separate at death is a result of sin. That's not the way it was supposed to be. I was very helped by a book, and I, I try not to do this too often. This is the first time I've ever done it. This book helped me a lot. This book is called The Last Enemy, subtitled Preparing to Win the Fight of Your Life. It's written by Dr. Michael Whitmer, who's the um, systematic theology guy over at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. I had him in class several times. And this is fantastic. This, it's a thin book. It's got like 30 chapters in here, okay? For you young people, this is basically a blog you can hold, all right? <laughs> he writes this, death is the last enemy. Every religion purports to solve some significant problem. Buddhism addresses the problem of suffering and it solves suffering by awakening its followers to the truth that suffering is merely an illusion. Hinduism claims that our problem is bad karma, which we can fix by devoting ourselves to every form of deity, including ourselves. Islam says our problem is pride, which we overcome when we submit to Allah. Sin and death are the one-two punch that Jesus came to knock out. If you think that these are nothing to worry about, then there's little chance that you will give your life to Jesus. But if you admit that these lethal blows are destroying you, then you probably already know your only hope lies in Jesus. No other religion even attempts to solve this problem. Jesus died and rose again to defeat the twin terrors of sin and death. Minimize them. Say that they're nothing to fear and you minimize the sacrifice of Christ that conquers them. Anyone can get through some minor difficulties. Overcoming sin and death requires an act of God. Overcoming sin and death demonstrates that Jesus has conquered his enemies and that all things have been subjected to him. The resurrection means the world is not always going to be a mess. Just imagine when, when Christ comes back and fixes it. Just all the stuff that gets used for wrong things now. Um, um, uh, Cornelius Plantinga, who's got a great book on sin, writes that um, someday speedboats that are used by drug runners will be used to teach poor kids how to water ski. Right? Missile silos filled with atomic weaponry will be used to teach scuba classes. We'll just start using stuff. But we, don't, we don't need that anymore, do we? Let's just use it for something great. When Christ comes back and his reign on the, on the world becomes complete, our world will not always be a mess. More quickly now, the third danger that Paul points us to is in verses 29 to 34. Sin will always reign. The world will always be a mess. Thirdly, the Christian life will always be meaningless. The Christian life, if the resurrection isn't true, then the Christian life will always be meaningless. 
Um, the three ways he talks about baptism here in verse 29. Here's the verse I didn't want to preach on. Otherwise, Paul writes, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Yeah, Paul, seriously, what do they mean <laughs> by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Um, the commentaries that I read gave 13 views, <laughs> which I now present to you in alphabetical order. No? Okay, I'll boil them down to the two most common. One's called vicarious baptism, which means that people were baptized for people who are now dead for their spiritual benefit. That seems very contrary to other places in the New Testament. It doesn't seem like Paul would have that sort of cause and effect view of baptism. That's one view. Second view is called solidarity baptism, that maybe people who were non-Christians had seen the way that godly believers had died and they were inspired by their faith and they decided to be baptized to join the church to be with these people one day. That's the view that I think fits. Either way, because of the resurrection, baptism is not a sign of of human repentance and commitment to rule keeping, which is, let me just say that again. Baptism is not a thing that we primarily do. We gotta be careful with this. Baptism is not just, I repent, I'm committing myself to keeping the rules, therefore I should get wet. Doesn't quite follow. Baptism is picturing it's representing our dying and rising with Christ. Okay, quickly now through the rest of the passage. Two other things that, that would make the Christian life meaningless. Perseverance would be meaningless. Look at verse 32. What do I gain, Paul writes, if I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we're going to die. Perseverance would be useless if Christ hasn't been raised. Distinction from the world. This is verse 33, don't be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. I love it. Paul's quoting a worldly proverb to show the church how they're learning too much from the world. There's great irony in there. Christianity is not a path of spirituality or a rule of life or a political agenda even. It includes and it empowers all of those things, but at its heart is the good news about an event that changed the world. The resurrection means the Christian life is not meaningless. Okay, so we have faced the facts of the resurrection. We've considered the dangers of denying the resurrection. Next, Paul invites us to analyze the anatomy of the resurrection. This is the part that you needed to come for. Specifically, what type of bodies will we have at the resurrection? I've heard this passage on the big, big house where we can play football. In second audio adrenaline, um, wherever that was. Is that right? Will there be golf in heaven? What about pets? Dogs, yes. Cats, no. Let's continue. (laughs) Verse 35. Paul says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Verse 36, he writes, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. You foolish person. It's like the apostolic version of that is a dumb question. (laughs) Paul tells uh, about the resurrected body 
with fantastic clarity. Here's some good hope for you, okay? First, in verses 37 to 41, he starts with comparisons. He's going to compare the resurrected body to some things. Then in verses 42 to 44, he's going to talk about contrasts. And finally, in verses 45 to 49, he's going to talk about Christ. Let's look at the comparisons in verse 37. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps a wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he chooses, and to each kind of seed its own body. Paul starts by comparing our body with seeds. A seed comes to the end of itself as a seed, says verse 36. It stops being a seed. And just like the resurrected body is not in the same form as the thing that was sown, the seed demonstrates the resurrection is not the same as a resuscitation. It's not just like, okay, and back. (laughs) You're, You're back now. It's not that, which is really great news given the shape of my knees right now. God is able to simultaneously change a thing's form and continue its identity, seed to tree. That's the first comparison. Now he's going to broaden the comparison from seeds to the rest of creation. Here's the point. God does not have design problems. God has demonstrated his ability to create things that fit their environment. Look at verse 39. We're going to read a couple of verses here. Not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There's heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory for the sun, another for the moon, another glory for the stars, for star differs from star in glory. If you're listening to that passage... You can hear Paul rhyming with Genesis 1, can't you? There, God created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the trees, and the plants, and their seeds. Paul is pointing to a new creation, a new Genesis. God is completing his project. Human rebellion and death dragged the whole world into decay. But now, Paul says... The final piece of the puzzle is moving into place. Humans are being remade in God's image. It's day six. Humans are being remade in God's image. This is not some strange distortion of our humanity, but it'll be the very thing we were made to be in the first place. If you like being human, you're going to love your new resurrected body. Now, Paul is done with his comparisons. He's ready to start talking about contrasts. Look at verse 42. I'm going to read this, see if you can find the four of them with me. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Here's four contrasts for you. Perishable, which means decreasing capacities, Increasing weaknesses, popping joints, graying hair. Young people, let me just tell you something here. Right before your hair falls out, it goes not just gray, but white and really stiff. It's scary and it's awful and you'll hate it. Good luck with that. Here's a musical analogy, though. 
That's perishable. Imperishable is the reverse of decay. Increasing strength, increasing vitality. The musical analogy is not just replacing very loud with very soft, but if you know some musical terms, it's replacing decrescendo, getting softer, with crescendo. Jesus offers us living water, always replenished, brand new strength. Contrast number two, dishonor, the fallen body, which displays unholy attitudes and it performs unworthy actions, is replaced by glory, the last stains and clouds of sin are cleared out and they no longer can eclipse the sun. Weakness, which means being characterized and plagued by past injuries, past accidents is replaced by power which is characterized and transformed by future glory and future effectiveness as we change from glory to glory says 2 Corinthians 3.17 the natural which is marred by human failure and self-interest It's replaced by the spiritual, which means we will be shaped by the Holy Spirit's presence and power. Finally, Paul's ready to bring out his biggest comparison and contrast. It's his clearest picture of our resurrected bodies, and it's this. Um, Comparisons, contrast, third, Christ. Verse 47. I'll read a couple verses here. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is a difficult concept for us to get, but it's called corporate solidarity. Those of you who play on sports teams know this is true. When one person scores a goal, the whole team gets the point. When one person is penalized, the whole team gets hurt. This is the way, this is, um, this is difficult for those of us in the um, postmodern West to get, we like to be, no, no, just myself. And if Adam sinned, well, that wasn't my fault. I was not there. I was not, I wouldn't have done that. I don't even like fruit. <laughs> and I would have told Eve what's up. So listen, listen, embrace it. Embrace it. If you can't be blamed for Adam's sin, then you can't benefit from Christ's righteousness. You're on your own. You don't want that. If you can't be blamed for Adam's sin, you can't benefit from Christ's righteousness. Think for just a a moment. Uh, I can do it. Um, When Abraham is arguing with God, about um, Sodom and is God going to destroy Sodom? He says, well, what if there's 50 righteous people there? Would you destroy the town then? God's like, no, I wouldn't do that. He's like, well, about, what about 30? No, I wouldn't destroy the town at 30. He's like, what about 10? And God's like, I wouldn't destroy the town if there were 10 righteous people there. And then Abraham stops. But he kind of stops like he didn't get all the way down to his final question, right? What's the final question? What if there's only... What if there's only one? Why doesn't Abraham ask it? Because he knows there's not a righteous person in Sodom. He just thought to himself, wait, Lot. Uh Uh-oh. 
So what he does, Abraham discovers a channel through the mountains of God's holiness. He discovers a pathway, a pass through the mountains of God's holiness. If we could find one perfect person that could get through there, then God would count his righteousness for that whole town. But Abraham stops because he can't find anybody. I got good news. We found somebody. We found somebody who can walk through the pass of God's holiness, living a perfect life. Hey, God, if we found one person who obeyed you completely, would you destroy his whole town? God's like, no, I wouldn't do that. I would allow his righteousness to count for that whole town. Welcome to Resurrection City, everybody. That's us. Finally, Paul, he's invited us to face the facts. He's warned us of the dangers of denying the resurrection. He's called us to analyze the anatomy of the resurrection. Just be glad I changed that. It used to be consider the corpiality. <laughs> that, was, that was Tuesday's outline. You're, you're glad I preach on Sunday. Finally, Paul invites us to grasp the glory of the resurrection. Let's pick it up in verse 51. Behold, Paul writes... Here's a mystery. Here's something you could not figure out on your own. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet is going to sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. This is too profound for human discovery. This is too Amazing of news for us to come up with on our own. On the last day, the lengthy processes will be finished. We will be changed in a flash. The last trumpet signals a new situation for an army. It calls the army to action in an instant. And look at the result. Verse 54 says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So Paul's question needs to be our question. Where, ask death, day death, where is your sting? And if you listen, you may hear an answer. Death may, may answer you and say, my sting is your sin. You're a sinner. That's my sting. I sting because you sin. If you had no sin, I would have no sting. You would just fly away to God when you die where all the sinless people go. But there are no sinless people. So your sin is my sting. And remember, even worse, the power of sin is the law. You know whose law? God's law. The power of my sting is God's law. God gives my sting power. And God's law says, those who have rebelled against me, Isaiah 66, their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. That's my sting. It's a burning that is never quenched. Your sin is my sting. The power of my sting is God's law. 
And God's law says your rebellion, your disobedience, your indifference to God deserves everlasting burnings. And I know many of us have heard that answer. And that weighs on us. But he just tricked you because he answered the wrong question. He answered, what is your sting? And Paul's question And your question has to be, where is your sting? Where is your sting? I hate more than anything else on the planet, bees. I I hate them. I I have stories. (laughs) At my desk where I work at Cornerstone, I have a window. And the afternoon light comes in through this way and puts like a shadow here. And there's a hornet's um, hive here. And they fly by my window. And as I'm typing at my computer, I just see the shadow of it right here. <laughs> That's funny for you. <laughs> but it basically keeps me at like a cardio workout all afternoon. <laughs> But here's something I learned. A bee can only sting once, and it's dead. It leaves its sting in the thing that got stung, and then it buzzes around for a minute or two. Then it's dead. Where is death's sting? It's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. It's buzzing around. It's scary. But it can hurt you no more than the shadows that are floating on my desk. Where is death's sting? It's in Christ. Great news for us. Finally, I was just so amazed at how Paul ends I was shocked to see this. I would have expected the last verse to be like, that is going to be a great day. Or, I'll see you there, sincerely, the Apostle Paul. But he writes in verse 58, which is the life verse for my son Ethan. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He ends with a practical exhortation. He ends with, this is how it's going to shape today. Easter means that God's new creation has begun and Jesus' followers not only receive the benefits of the resurrection, but receive the calling of the resurrection We're called to be the agents of this new creation. And because we know how the story ends, it changes our perspective on our circumstances. Because we know how the story ends, it changes our perspective on the circumstances. Think for yourself, think to yourself of uh, the young lady. uh, Friday night, um, has a date with her long time, long time, did I say long time? Long time boyfriend. For dinner, he's gonna pick her up for dinner. She's in her room, and six o'clock. At six fifteen, 
and 6.30. Come on. And 6.45. A honk. He just honked. Heads down to the car. Well, gets in the car. And he says, so where do you want to go? Which means he has no plans. She's like, I don't care. Which couldn't be further from the truth. He says, let's go to Panera. She's like, great, I'll pick two. (laughs) They go to Panera. And he says, well, let's, uh, hey, let's go down to the beach. She's like, if you would have told me beach, I would have brought the cardigan. We're going to go down to the beach. Okay. What if earlier that afternoon she got a call from her friend who said, you're never going to guess who I just saw at the ring store. He was there. I saw him walk out with something. Small box. I think it's coming. (laughs) Right? Now she's in her room. Rewind the tape. Six o'clock. Okay. 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 6.15 comes. She's not getting angry. She's like, it's... He's got big plans. This is, this is huge. 6.30 comes. She's like, oh man, we must have like a reservation or something. Okay, okay. Honk, honk. <laughs> so where do you want to go? Anywhere, anywhere. You pick, you pick. You just pick. He says, how about Panera? And she's like, his dad is the manager at Panera. Maybe there's, okay, okay. She's like, I love the shape of their bagels. (laughs) She's waiting all the way through. She's like, in her soup, spoons it out, kind of like shakes it just... Hey, let's go to the beach. She's like, sunset. Yeah, yeah, let's go to the beach. If you know how it ends, it changes your perspective on the circumstances. Right? Here it comes. It ends with resurrection. It ends with resurrection. So here you go. You got a, um, you got a, a rough uh, visit with the doctor. Okay. That's rough. That is rough. Here's how it ends. It ends with resurrection. Be steadfast, immovable, always giving yourself to the work of the Lord. You've got a social justice thing that's on your heart, the Lord put on your heart for this. Um, Lord, help me here. For this um, adoption center and for this... Um, um, and, and this situation, this, um, what, what's the name of that abortion clinic in Grand Rapids? Heritage. That's the worst name I could imagine. And your heart is breaking about what's happening in there. Here you go. Here's how it ends. Resurrection is how it ends. Be steadfast, immovable, 
always giving yourself to the work of the Lord because you know in the Lord your labor. It's not in vain. It's not in vain. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray that you would teach us what it means to be faithful to you. Help us to fill our minds with the truth of the resurrection. Help us to fill our hearts with the fire of the resurrection. Help us to recognize how that can change and shape and influence our perspective on the things that we're walking through now, God. Your promises power us. You have given us, um, Peter wrote to us, everything we need for life and godliness in these great and precious promises. And we lay hold of this one this morning. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. When you make good on the promise, when you raise Jesus from the dead, that in him, the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead shall also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who now lives in us. We claim that promise, Jesus.